Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Whenever you're visiting a national park, be sure to spend some time gazing up at the sky at night. If you do so on a clear night, when you're at Natural Bridges National Monument, Yellowstone, the backcountry of Yosemite, or Voyagers National Park, just to name a handful of parks, you'll be amazed and possibly overwhelmed by the stars winking back at you. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. It's been said that the night sky represents the other half of the national park system. It's in our national parks where you can experience some of the darkest skies you'll find anywhere. Our guest this week knows all about that. Artist, author, astronomer, and night sky ambassador, Dr. Tyler Nordgren, talks with the travelers Lynn Riddick about the cosmic opportunity that the parks offer to teach the public about astronomy. Lynn will be back in a minute with Dr. Nordgren. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. From now through December 31st, 2021, Interior Federal Credit Union is offering auto loans with rates as low as 1.99% APR. If you aren't already a member, apply at interiorfcu.org, get ready for the holidays, and take advantage of the year-end car deals. Use their car buying services to help find the best deal out there and start saving today. Interior Federal Credit Union, the official credit union for the Department of the Interior and your natural resource for financial services. Membership is required. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Hi, Kurt Repencheck again. If you read the Traveler's website this past week, you saw stories about the need for more and better housing for National Park employees, about how the infrastructure bill signed into law by President Biden could greatly benefit the parks, and how a Utah man allegedly made up a story to gain a helicopter rescue from high on Denali in Denali National Park and Preserve. I can't think of any other news outlet that works every day of the year to keep you on top of news flowing out of the national park system. We hope you appreciate our work to keep you informed on the parks and hope that you'll support that work with a financial donation. Frankly, The Traveler wouldn't exist without the support from our readers and listeners, and our intent is to continue providing this daily content for years to come. 
With your support, we can do that. You can find a link to our donate page on the menu bar at nationalparkstraveler.org. Now, let's get back to stargazing. It's probably safe to call Dr. Tyler Nordgren a night owl. Under the cover of darkness, you might find him paddling down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon, pointing out constellations, or guiding a tour group in Alaska to see the Northern Lights, or photographing the Milky Way from a craggy overlook in Acadia National Park. Today, he's joining us in broad daylight from his home in Ithaca, New York. Hi, Tyler. Welcome to The Traveler. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to tell our listeners a bit about you. Your educational background is in physics and astronomy. You've been an astronomy professor. You've worked at a couple of observatories, including the U.S. Naval Observatory. You've published books about dark skies, including a guide to astronomy in the national parks, and a book about solar eclipses. You've served on the board of directors of the International Dark Sky Association. You capture the beauty of dark skies in photographs and on original posters that you create. And underneath all of this is your passion for educating the public about the wonders of the sky. And you see the national parks as the perfect classroom. So how did you come to this love and appreciation of dark skies? I understand it may have started at a ranger talk in Yosemite. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've always loved nature and, and night skies. I, I, I was a, a scout when I was young. But really, the thing that, that changed my life, and I don't know how many people can point to a, a particular moment that changed their life, but I, I can. It was going to see a ranger program at Yosemite National Park. I had just gotten tenure at my university, and so I, I bought myself a digital camera, decided I was going to drive up to Yosemite and practice taking photos of the Milky Way, and I saw that there was a ranger giving a night sky program over at the lodge, and so I thought, well, good heavens, I like that. I'll go see that, <laughs> and I learned about all the amazing work that the National Park Service was doing to, to measure and monitor light pollution within the parks. And as the, the ranger got showing photographs of nebulae and planets and stars visible in the sky, the audience oohed and odd. And this, this was an outdoor amphitheater. And so as it got darker and darker, the stars came out. And I, I realized at that moment that this was where I wanted to be. These were people seeing the, the universe for the probably the first time in their lives. And this is where to reach out and, and tell them about what all the wonderful things were we were discovering and why it's important to, to help preserve starry skies to see them in. Tell us a little bit about dark skies in general. And is it accurate to say that they are greatly endangered? You know, the, the Milky Way, this, that, that's our, our home galaxy. It's, it's that pearly band that stretches from horizon to horizon and is, is only visible now if you go someplace really dark. That used to be something that people could see everywhere, every night, all over the world, up until really only about 100 years ago. And now, because of artificial lights, uh, the current measurements seem to indicate that maybe 80% of U.S., European populations can no longer even faintly see that Milky Way from where they live. And that given where people are living worldwide, 
at roughly 50% of the children born this year will never see the Milky Way. So they'll never get to see a natural night sky though the way it should be. Well, in addition to sort of the cultural things related to not being able to see a beautiful dark sky, there's issues with ecosystems and the effect that artificial light has on them. Tell us what some of the most imminent threats are to ecosystems um, and maybe some of the most threatened areas. So, I mean, we aren't the only species that has evolved to, to need to want to enjoy uh, a natural night sky. A classic example are sea turtles down in Florida. Uh, the, the female turtle comes up onto the beaches to lay her eggs. And when those eggs hatch, those little turtles have to find their way off of the dangerous sand where they can be eaten by predators. They have to find their way back out to sea. And if you think about what what our world used to be like before we had lit up the night sky like day. Uh, typically, if you were a little sea turtle, uh, the land, uh, the direction away from the ocean is where bushes and grasses grow. And so it's dark, but the other direction towards the ocean, well, that's, that's where starlight and moonlight will reflect off of the ocean waves. And that's where it's relatively bright. So hardwired into these little turtle brains is this, this drive to, to crawl towards the light. And unfortunately, in today's world, that's probably an interstate or a motel parking lot. It's not towards the safety of the ocean. And so all over the world, there are species like this that are encountering their world being turned upside down. And these starlight or darkness that they've evolved to need has gone away. Uh, think of birds migrating, now running into brightly lit buildings and being confused by brightly lit parking lots and stores down below. And uh, uh, dung beetles, dung beetles. We never think about dung beetles, but there's evidence that dung beetles actually roll their little balls of dung by the light of the Milky Way. And they they draw upon that big band of the Milky Way in order to figure out where to roll their, their little balls. Now, so these are all things we, you know, the animals themselves are stargazers, or at least they depend upon the stars the way we do. And that even comes to, to health issues, such as the fact that there's, there's evidence that lighting up our, our sky at night has uh, impacts on the ability of our bodies to fight off cancer, perhaps. So we are all animals evolved to need night on this planet. Now, you've said that our national parks are some of the last places to see a truly dark sky, and you work with the National Park Service to keep it that way. So tell us a little bit about the collaboration with the Park Service and the work that you do. So one of the things to think about with the, the night sky, and this is a relatively new idea within the, the national parks, this idea of the sky being a part of a park. Uh, when I first began working with the National Park Service, it was a sabbatical from my university back in 2007. And for a full 14 months, I traveled through parks all over the country. And I still remember arriving at one park, I will not name which park it was, and the superintendent looked at me and said, uh, what does the night sky have to do with our park? And he was really baffled as to why I was even there. And 
that is something that has completely changed. It has been 10 years since I've encountered that, that attitude. And it's because within the park service, people have realized that in the same way, a park is more than just the granite cliffs or the, the waterfalls. It's the animals that live there. It's the clear air that allows you to see the landscape. It's the ecosystem that allows the animals and the trees uh, to, to live in harmony and to actually be a, a healthy environment. That part of that healthy environment is the night sky. And you can kind of think of this as you imagine if you were at the Grand Canyon and you went out to the South Rim and instead of seeing the canyon layout before you with the, the distant North Rim, instead there was this haze, this gray or orange haze that completely obscured the view in front of you. Now, the Grand Canyon's still there, though the rocks have been preserved. But unquestionably, you would say you had lost something. The canyon was not the way it, it should be. And, and that's, that's what's happened with the stars at night. Rather than going out and seeing the stars at night from our own homes, there's this orange haze between us and the stars. And that's our, our lights, our city lights, our street lights, our house lights, scattering off the, the air molecules, the, the water vapor, the smog, the dust that's in our air, and reflecting that light back to us. And this is one of the things the National Park Service realized oh, about 20 years ago and set up a small team of rangers and astronomers to go out and measure how bright or dark the skies were above parks and national monuments all across the country to determine what was happening to the parks. What were parks that were being adversely affected by light? Where did that light come from? Was it within the park? Was it from surrounding communities or distant cities? And maybe by first identifying what you had and what was affecting it, you could then go on to the idea of preserving it and protecting it for future generations. So explain the process, how you measure light. So one of the things that the, uh, the, the Park Service does is they have a, a camera system that's set up to a, a telescope, a computerized telescope mount. And so the astronomer, the ranger who's operating it can go out to a, a location, set this up, and for the course of an hour, photograph the entire sky above the horizon. And through those photographs, identify, all right, which features are stars, which features are the Milky Way, which features are planets, subtract out those, and what's left is the light from us distant cities and being able to identify, okay, there's a glow off towards the Northeast. What is there in that direction? Maybe it's a city. Maybe it's actually uh, an oil well that otherwise by day is completely obscured and invisible to the public, but by night its lights reveal its presence. And that's one of the things that, that I've found in a, a lot of national parks out West that once the sun goes down, especially in, in areas without a lot of trees or bushes uh, where oil and minerals are, are being sought for, there's a lot of light out there that uh, is not actually associated with anybody living there. 
Interesting. So what kind of things do you do with the park or have you done with the park um, service? I think that there was something you were doing about night sky training for national park rangers. Yes. One of the things that I, I really enjoyed doing was this idea of, okay, so I spent a sabbatical this 14 months with the parks. And during that time gave a lot of public talks, which I absolutely love to do. But if you're going to reach people, the way to reach people are to help train the rangers who give talks every night, uh, every week, every month of the year. Astronomy programs are one of the most popular ranger programs that are given in the parks. So starting back uh, during that sabbatical, I began offering little training programs for park rangers to familiarize them with, with what's going on in the sky, because not everybody knows. And, and you look up in the sky, yeah, you see the stars, but you know, if you don't know how to find a constellation or what constellations are or what that Milky Way is, you know, what people don't know can confuse them. And people don't like to be confused or scared. And so there's a lot of hesitancy if people don't feel they really understand what's going on. So for a number of years, uh, I helped with various ranger training programs. And unfortunately, the very first thing that got canceled for me when the pandemic began was a night sky ranger academy. Uh, there were a group of us that were planning to do a ranger training program out in Death Valley. It was going to be a week-long intensive training in how to use telescopes, identify features in the sky, and create your own night sky program for the public. And I still remember the sense of chaos and fear as we were watching the news, and eventually that, that had to be canceled. Uh, the plan had been to do two of those a year. Uh, we we I, I don't know what's going to happen. I imagine they'll come back, but it's one of the things that, that I'm sad to, to have missed during this pandemic time. Well, when you're speaking to rangers or the general public about the cosmos, it, it must be a challenge to keep the subject matter easy to understand. You know, one of the things during this pandemic is I've given a number of uh, talks uh, online via Zoom for a, for a few parks. And it's, yeah, you know, it's it's fun. I enjoy it. Uh, I, I've been trained to, to make complicated issues uh, understandable, but there is nothing that compares to actually being out there in an amphitheater with a crowd. I was lucky to be able to do out at Grand Canyon this last summer for the brief period that things seemed to be getting better. And it was right after the park really reopened up their park programs. And we had 200 people show up to the amphitheater, all socially distant, every other row blocked off. And it was spectacular. Spectacular! The number of questions, I, I think I easily, outside of the talk, spent an hour and a half just answering questions. And that's what I love. What are some of the questions that people ask? Oh, they run the gamut uh, from, well, why is Pluto not a planet anymore? <laughs> to, uh, what can you tell me about UFOs? Uh, <laughs> especially this last year when uh, there was news of UFOs being seen by military pilots. Boy, I got a lot of questions about that one. Uh, but also they they run the, the issue of uh, why are we exploring Mars to where did the universe come from? And it's one of the things I, I love about working with the public is because everybody has heard something about astronomy, something about the night sky. Black holes appear in movies. Uh, we hear of time travel and 
You know, even if you've seen Star Trek, you've heard the word of parsec. You know, there's there's all these things just floating around in in our common public culture that touch on astronomy in the night sky. And one of the things I enjoy doing is finding a way to connect each and every one of those to the best I can to something you can see for yourself in the sky overhead when you get to a dark national park. Now, going back to the Grand Canyon, you completed a three-week astronomer in residence there this summer. And I understand it was the first such residency there. How did it come about and what are your main takeaways from that experience? So the, the national parks uh, have long had uh, artists in residence. It's a, it's a, a long storied history with the national parks. Uh, but Grand Canyon back in 2019, on the 100th anniversary of its declaration as a national park, it was declared by the International Dark Sky Association to be a dark sky, an international dark sky park. And this was through long effort by the folks at Grand Canyon to help preserve the, the dark starry skies there. And that involved a, a huge undertaking. There were literally thousands and thousands of light bulbs on buildings all throughout the park. Some of those light bulbs, they had no idea who'd installed them and why at some distant point in the park's history. And so as part of this inventory, they, they looked to, to renovate and refit these. It used to be that there were giant lampposts all along the hotels uh, right there on the rim of the canyon. And if you were camping down at Phantom Ranch or say rafting along the river down below, you could actually see those lights up on the canyon rim. And that, that was certainly not preserving the natural landscape for the future enjoyment, which is a task of the national parks. So as part of this Grand Canyon's Dark Sky certification, they, they renovated, retrofitted all those lights. And as part of this, they wanted to promote what a wonderful night sky resource they had in the park. And so they created this new program, this astronomer in residence. And the idea was that this person didn't have to be a professional astronomer, but should be somebody who could communicate the wonder and beauty of the night sky to the national park, be it through evening programs, painting, poetry, writing, telescope viewing, however you want to do it. And so I was, I was asked as a result of the work I'd done through my lectures, my writing, my art, if I could be the first astronomer in residence. And it was a tremendous honor. And I was delighted to, to be able to be, to be a part of that and start something that I think really should become a, a much broader program throughout the National Park Service. So how'd you spend your days while you were there? So I wound up being there uh, in late June and July, which coincided with one of the hottest times ever recorded there at the South Rim. Temperatures were daily uh, above 90 degrees. And so normally I, I love hiking down into the canyon, but there was no way I was going to do that this time uh, because they had temperature warnings of 120 degrees down below the, 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 the canyon rim by daytime. So instead, what I did is I spent a lot of time traveling around on the rim of the canyon, uh, talking to the public. Uh, I, at one point, I set up a, a table with an Ask Me Anything sign out at the uh, El Tovar Hotel and just answered questions. But in the evenings, when the sun would go down, I'd be out there on the, the lookouts, out on some of the, the, look, uh, the rim lookouts. 
And I'd take photographs at night. I would talk with park visitors who would go out there hoping to see sunset. And I'd tell them, well, hey, if you come back, say in just an hour and a half, you'll get to actually see a galaxy rise. And that was because at that time of year, after twilight ended, you had the Milky Way running from North Rim to South Rim, rising in the east. And I still remember the one evening, uh, chatted with a family that, that unfortunately had missed sunset and the clouds had kind of been, been uncooperative. And I told them, you know, okay, if you're staying at a, at a hotel here uh, in the park or even outside, go out tonight at 1130 and you'll see the Milky Way. And the next morning, as I was out for my, my morning walk along the rim, I saw them again. They were out for a morning jog. And when they saw me, they came up to me and said, we did what you said. And we saw it. We saw the Milky Way. And they were so happy. So that's that's what I, I did. Uh, and in addition, I created a, a new artwork that said that half the park is after dark. Because that's that's really the the slogan that, that I developed over these last, oh gosh, uh, 12 years that half the park really is after the sun goes down. I want to talk a little bit more about the International Dark Sky Park Association that you mentioned. Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky is the latest national park to receive this designation. You probably know that. And more and more parks um, have earned this. Can you explain a little more about the process by which parks and other natural sites can become official dark sky places? And can you list some other parks that are official dark sky designated? So this is a program that, that first started back in 2007. Uh, and the, the idea is that locations, parks, communities, pr- preserves, should one have uh, dark skies. You should be able to go there and see the stars. Second, you should be able to demonstrate that that place is actively working to preserve those dark starry skies, that they are uh, retrofitting lights um, and and seeking to to keep the artificial light from obscuring the the resource that they have. Uh, and then third, they need to be actively working to, to spread the word of how important it is to preserve these skies, both, both locally there at the park or the city or place, but also on a, a much more national, international, global scale. So it's, it's really three things. It's, it's just it's having those stars, working to preserve those stars, and working to communicate to the public the, the importance of preserving those stars. And the very first uh, international dark sky park was Natural Bridges National Monument in southern Utah. And I got a chance to go there probably about uh, six months after the their designation. And at that time, it was it, it's a tiny little place, a, a, a small little campground, uh, three beautiful natural bridges. And that's mostly what people came to see. They'd drive in, see the bridges, drive out. I went back 10 years later and talked to the rangers, and they said, this is the thing they are now known for, those starry skies that people come in. The campground is full. They give multiple talks almost every night of the week about stars and the sky. People, if they can't get a place in the campground, they stay in the local town. And so it becomes uh, an economic boom 
for the, the local community because now people aren't just driving through, they're actually staying. And if you're staying, you need a hotel, you need some place to eat. So this has been a wonderful thing for places like Natural Bridges, other parks, Big Bend National Park in West Texas, still the darkest park I've ever seen. Uh, but also places like, oh gosh, Joshua Tree in Grand Canyon, uh, Chaco Culture National Historical Park in Northwestern New Mexico. These are places where people have been looking at the stars for at least thousands of years, and they integrated it into the buildings and the rock walls around them. So these are some of the important places just in the United States. And these are these communities are now found all around the world, but the, the largest collection of them are, are here in the United States. What about our national seashores? That's also something that's really important. Seashores, lake shores, uh, places like, you know, okay, so I've mentioned a number of parks that happen to be in the desert southwest, but if you go up to the Great Lakes, the parks up there, places like Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore in Michigan, they're tremendously dark up there and absolutely beautiful, beautiful skies. Sure, it gets cloudy and quite cold in the wintertime, but if you're lucky enough to be there on a starry sky, I still remember seeing the stars, including Mars, reflecting in Lake Michigan. Uh, so, and if you go further east to, say, the Atlantic uh, coast, place like Acadia National Park has got one of the darkest locations on the East Coast. And they, they rightly celebrate that with a, a night sky festival every fall. Your book, Stars Above, Earth Below, A Guide to Astronomy in the National Parks, is a guidebook for what to look for in the skies above. The Traveler's Kurt Repenshek, our editor, actually reviewed it when it was first published, and I just bought a copy yesterday because I like looking up at a dark sky, but my knowledge is very limited. So much of what you see depends on the time of year, the weather, where you're physically located, and the darkness around you. So what's your best advice to novice stargazers like me? So what I'd recommend is if you want to see the maximum amount of stars whenever you go to any national park, the idea is you want to go when there's no moon up in the sky. So pick a time near new moon uh, during the month. If you're the sort of person that happens to be an evening person, go when maybe the moon is up in the morning before dawn. So you've got this, again, beautiful, dark, starry sky in the, in the early evening. Uh, if the Milky Way is the thing that you've never seen and you want to see it as bright and beautiful as it can be, uh, the time to go to a park is, say, late June, July, August, and September, uh, and even into October. Uh, so that late su that summer and, and early fall, and again, you do that on a moonless night, and you'll have the brightest part of the Milky Way, the summer Milky Way, the part towards the center of our galaxy will be up in the evening sky. And it will, uh, it will just, it will change your world when you see that, because, you know, that, that band, that's, that's the light of a billion stars that make up our galaxy. Our galaxy is actually a collection of a hundred billion stars. And when you see that band, it's the single biggest reminder that we are part of something vastly larger than ourselves. And it, it, it really is 
just as spectacular as you know, granite gorges and waterfalls. But the last thing I'll mention is you need to give yourself time. It takes time for your eyes to adjust to the darkness. 10 minutes will get you most of the way, but really a half an hour. A half an hour allows your eyes to really adjust to the darkness. And by adjusting to the darkness, what I mean is don't keep looking at your phone to figure out how long you've been out there. Don't read a book. Don't look at the lights on your dashboard because any of those lights, any of those artificial lights, even the campfire, so you know, more or less natural light, will ruin your night vision. So give yourself time with no light at all. Just stare up at the sky. And over time, you'll see vastly more than you've ever seen before. Good advice. So when you are out in a park um, in the middle of the night, staring up at the sky, do you ever get scared about being out so late or any close encounters with wildlife while working? Oh, you know, I spent, uh, I spent about a month at Glacier National Park. And during that time, they were doing construction on the going to the sun road. So it was closed at night. So I was able to uh, drive up a little way and then walk along the road uh, at night taking photographs. But I very quickly realized never to get more than about 10, 20 yards away from where my car was parked because of grizzlies within the, within the park. Uh, that was one of the, the, the few times where I've, I've been out to trying to get a photograph that I'd had in mind and heard something rustle in the bushes and thought, nope, nope, I don't need that photograph. Back to the car. <laughs> but, but other than that, oh, I, being out at night, you, you get a chance to let your eye, not only your eyes, but your ears open up to the sounds around you. And so there was one night I was out at Chaco Culture and I heard sounds all around me. And I, I, I suspect now that they were deer walking by behind me. And I was just sitting there, ignored by them, a part of the landscape. And that was really a tremendous feeling. Well, you talked about uh, Big Bend a little bit, and I forwarded a passage to you from your book describing your first trip there and the joy the night sky brought you. Um, would you read that passage for us? Sure. So the reason why I had gone to Big Bend was that it's one of the darkest, and like I said, it's, it's the darkest park I've been to in the continental United States. And it's one of the southernmost with really dry, clear skies. And there's a certain time of year in the spring where if you get up late at night, say about two in the morning, and it's a moonless night, at that time of year, the Milky Way, rather than being this, this, this arc above the horizon, the Milky Way at that location, at that time of year, at that time of night, actually rings wraps around the horizon. And so as our galaxy, which is this giant pinwheel in space, at that moment, that pinwheel is parallel with the ground, with the horizon. And so I wrote this uh, at that moment. I have come a long way to be here and to see this and a shiver runs down my spine. On this night, in this place, and for this moment, the galaxy is laid out before me. My horizon extends a quarter million light years in each direction, and I know exactly where I am in the universe. I am standing straight and tall in my galaxy, the Milky Way, my home. 
Well said. Well, that's an excerpt from Stars Above, Earth Below, and this is Lynn Riddick, and I'm talking with astronomer and night sky ambassador, Dr. Tyler Nordgren, and we'll be back right after this short break. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. I'm back now with Dr. Tyler Nordgren. You are an artist, a graphic designer, as well as an astronomer. You're also a published author and photographer. And your photography of the skies is amazing. Um, They are featured in exhibits in the national parks and elsewhere. And your photos, your photos almost look like they were taken while it was still light outside. So tell me about your approach. So some of what I do is I, 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 I try to take as little equipment out with me as possible. It's just a camera and a tripod and a little cable release. And I go out at night to capture what I experience what I see when I'm out in a national park. Uh, and so I'll set up somewhere, point my, my camera at a view that even by day I would find beautiful. And then I wait for twilight to end and I snap a picture. Now, for a lot of places, truly dark places, the sky is actually much, much brighter than the landscape is. Those The sky being the stars, maybe some glow from a distant city, uh, but the Milky Way. And so for most photographs, the sky just turns up to be quite bright and the landscape looks quite dark. 
And so one of the things I've started doing is going out when there's a little bit of a crescent moon in the sky, maybe three days past new moon, just a little bit of, of moonlight will light up the landscape. And so I'll get this balanced photo that, to my mind, reminds me of, of what I see when I'm really out there. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about your posters. You often create posters promoting the dark skies in the parks, and you started creating these posters out of necessity. Tell us a little bit about that. So during that sabbatical, I had this this book contract. And so as I was traveling around, I was writing my book, taking photos because I I needed pictures. If I was going to tell people about what they could see in a national park, I, I wanted to show them. So not only was I out pretty much every clear night uh, taking photos, but then I decided I, I also wanted something more than just photographs. And that's what, because I noticed in a lot of national parks and the gift shops and the lodges, you had this wonderful artwork from the history of the national parks. And it was those WPA, those Works Progress Administration posters from the 1930s uh, that have become such a, a huge memento, uh, iconic really for the national parks. And there were these See America poster campaign to get people to go out in the midst of the Great Depression and see the beauty that the national parks were preserving. And so it was a form of public education about nature. And I thought, well, you know, I'm in essence, I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to get people to go out and see the beauty the park is preserving above the horizon at night. And so I came up with this poster campaign that said, see the Milky Way instead of see America. And as I began to uh, work on that, I also then came up with this, this slogan, not just see the Milky Way, because there were some parks that, well, you couldn't see the Milky Way, but you could see stars. And so really the important thing was the idea that half the park is after dark. So for my book, I, came, I drew one poster that was in this WPA style. I put it in there as an illustration, and I thought, well, that's neat. But when the book came out, and it was really incredibly popular, it got carried in, in a number of park bookstores, uh, got well-reviewed. One of the things that I kept getting asked about by my park ranger friends was, can I use that Half the Park is After Dark poster for my evening program? And I said, sure, happy, happy to have you use it. And then, and then I started getting requests. Well, could you maybe put a Joshua tree in that poster? Because it just sort of been a generic picture of two people looking up at the Milky Way. Okay, I can do a Joshua tree. And then it became an arch. And then it was Black Canyon of the Gunnison. And pretty soon it was a series of posters. And then after that, I started getting requests from the park gift shops to ask if they could carry it in their, in their gift store. And so before I realized it, I was creating a poster series. And just like the WPA See America poster campaign uh, had existed in the 1930s, now just by chance, I was creating a new poster campaign that at this point I think is in something like 50, 50 or 60 national parks across the country. So it's just been wildly successful, far beyond anything I, I'd ever imagined. Is it hard to decide on the central image to feature in a poster when you're designing it? For, for most of these, they're, they're parks that I've been to and I've loved. And so one of the things I do is I, I seek to, 
to include iconic features within the park that that I love by day uh, and show that, no, if you go out there at night, you can there. It's equally beautiful once the sun goes down. But I've also started getting requests to draw posters from parks I've actually never been to before. And that's where things do get get complicated. So what I've done is I've begun to work with the park rangers to say, all right, tell me something about your park. Tell me about the place. Where do you love to go? What is it the the public looks for when they visit your park? And then I start to work with the rangers on creating a a design that works for them. And if if folks are interested, uh, you can see all of those those designs at my website, tylernordgren.com. Very good. So tell us a little bit about your latest poster related to eclipses. So one of the things that that came out of working with the national parks was back in 2012, soon after the book came out, there was a, a solar eclipse, an annular solar eclipse that was visible from parks all over the Southwest. And a solar eclipse is when the moon passes between the earth and the sun. In the case of an annular eclipse, the moon in its orbit around the earth sometimes changes its distance. Sometimes it's close, sometimes it's a little far away. And if the moon passes between the earth and the sun when it's at its most distant point, it doesn't completely block out the sun. If the alignment's perfect, you get what's called a ring of fire. And that's what happened in 2012. And so I got requests from about a dozen parks that were along the path of that annularity to create a a poster because Nobody really knew what to expect. We thought, hey, this should be something to advertise. Let people know what's coming. Well, it was wildly successful again. Uh, And so for every eclipse that's gone through national parks, I've created these. And as I've started another side business of leading eclipse tours, I've created these posters for every tour that I've led. And so the one that's coming up now is uh, there's going to be a total solar eclipse visible from Antarctica on December 4th of 2021 this year. And so in about 10 days, I'm going to be departing for Antarctica. And for that, I created a a special poster uh, showing the ship that I'm going to be on amongst the ice flows off the coast of Antarctica with the eclipse above the ice. So I cannot wait. So far, every, every eclipse I've drawn a poster for I've managed to see. So fingers crossed for this one. So is that, would you say, one of the darkest places in the world? It can be, uh, except when we go this time, it'll be December. And so that's going to be the Southern Hemisphere's summer. So it's not going to get quite dark down there. So I'm not quite sure what stargazing will be able to do. But part of me hopes that if during the moment of totality, there happens to have been, say, a uh, an eruption from off of the sun, maybe three days before the eclipse, there's a chance that we could see perhaps northern lights during the moment of totality. So fingers crossed for that one, too. <laughs> I hope it happens. Now, I have been known to drag friends out in the parks to look at the sky at night. And uh, I also love the Perseid meteor shower every August. And I was about 19 when I first saw it near my home in what was then fairly rural Howard County, Maryland. And this year um, in August, I coerced a friend and her husband and two sons to stay up till 2 a.m. to watch. And we were rewarded with some pretty spectacular shooting stars. But you believe that Geminids shower in December is actually a better show? Did I say that right? 
Yes, yes. It's called the Geminids. And because a meteor shower is caused by the Earth traveling through a stream of dust that's been left behind by a comet. And so as all these little dust grains orbit the sun and the Earth passes through that, it looks as if all of these little dust grains heating up in our atmosphere, producing the shooting stars, it looks as if they're all coming from a particular point in the sky. It's called the radiant. And wherever that radiant happens to be, whatever constellation it happens to, to look like it's coming from, that's what the, the meteor shower is named. So the Perseids come from the constellation of Perseus. The Geminids come from the constellation of Gemini. The Geminids uh, are just as good as the Perseids, except they happen in the middle of winter. They happen in December. And so it's cold out. People understandably do not <laughs> want to go out at two in the morning to look at shooting stars. So not as many people go out at that time of night. Halfway in between, like the Leonids are coming up on November, the morning of November 19th. And that's usually a, a pretty good in-between one. Uh, that one actually gets really good every 33 years when the comet that those dust grains come from replenishes that supply. So it made some spectacular meteor showers back in 1999 and 2000. So be on the lookout for 2032 and 2033. That's not as far away as you might think. That's right. You know, you've got the wheels churning in my head about Big Bend. I'm in South Texas and, you know, Big Bend is never easy to get to no matter where you're coming from. But I was thinking it's probably, you know, time for me to go back to that national park. I haven't been there in a long time. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I should go in December and see if I can see the Geminid shower. Would that be a good place to see it? I think that'd be a spectacular place to see it. I just bundle up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And again, meteor showers are at their best uh, when you see them between midnight and dawn, because that's when you're on the, the side of the earth, the, the night side of the earth that's plowing into that stream of dust particles. And if you uh, do it, if it happens that that uh, meteor shower falls on a moonless night, then that's the best time of all. So what I'd recommend is look for when is the next time uh, the Geminids will occur on a moonless morning before dawn. Okay. Well, you know, I, I was actually staying up till two just about every night during the Perseid shower. And uh, it didn't seem like that was quite late enough. Um, you know, but I was saying, you know, I got to go to bed at some point. And I, I kind of had the feeling that if I stayed up till four or five, I'd see more meteors. So how late do you typically stay up during an event like that? Oh, you know, I'll, I'll admit that 2 a.m. is really kind of about my limit for me these days. Uh, during the, the Perseid meteor storm back around 99, 2000, yeah, I went out. I went out all night. I, I pulled an all-nighter. But time catches up with you. And I, I find that about 2 a.m., that nice warm bed looks really inviting. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, I wondered if you had uh, FOMO, a fear of missing out by going to bed too early. Oh, yeah. And it's it's definitely true with the Northern Lights when I lead Northern Lights tours. Uh, Northern Lights are usually at their best around local midnight or local 1 a.m. if it's during daylight savings time. And every time I'm, I'm out, uh, I keep thinking, all right, this looks pretty good. But boy, it's about 2 a.m. 
I don't know. Should I stay out another hour? And I keep thinking, you know, they're going to get really good the minute I go back to bed. So it happens. Well, those are my questions. Any final thoughts for us? You know, one thing I just, I, I really want to encourage people to do uh, you know, as, as time goes on, you know, we, we find there's so many things in our lives that, that take our attention. You know, I've got an iPhone. I, I doom scroll through there reading the Washington Post or whatever until late at night. Even my books are, are now on my iPhone. Uh, and all of these things produce light that goes into my eyes. So when you do get that chance to get out to a national park, even if you've got cell service out there, put the phone away, fight that urge. I, I have a hard time doing it too, but get your, put the phone down and get out to a, an overlook or a, a nice, beautiful, safe place. Maybe, maybe even just a park bench that you can lean back on and look up at the stars. There's research that, that indicates that people that, that are able to feel awe, that go and experience awe with a starlit night, seeing the Milky Way with a solar eclipse or the Northern Lights, that ability to feel awe actually helps make us better people because we realize that the world isn't all about ourselves, that we're all connected and that we're part of a vastly larger universe than, than just us. And so I, I really want to encourage people to go out and tap into that feeling of connection that you get by feeling awe under a starry sky. Great advice. Um, Tyler, thank you for your time today. And we will look forward to hearing more about your experiences. And I wish you a successful trip to Antarctica. Thank you so much. I, I'm looking forward to it. And I, I can't wait to be back and talk to you more again sometime. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be talking with a man who clearly has lived the dream of traveling to some of the most adventurous destinations in the world, including the summit of Mount Everest. Rick Ridgway has a new book out about his life lived wild, and we'll be here to discuss it. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.